Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle and we're in Shepherd Market where Brent Estabrook has started a residency. You know Brent's work. He's best known for his large-scale oil paintings of stuffed animals. He approaches his work with a delightful playfulness and um, combines it with meticulous technique. Hello, Brent. Hello, Maeve. Nice to have you here in London and I've loved watching how rapidly you create things. We're standing in front of something that's a departure for the animals that you're known for, the stuffed animals. Mm -hmm. But to me it feels the same and it's called a quilt painting. Mm -hmm. And you did this here on site. I did. And you've only been here a couple of weeks. Yeah. And the gallery's getting full. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm gonna fill up this entire gallery with, once this work goes out, I'm filling it up with more artwork. Um, but yes, I, I started with uh, one of my quilt paintings, which it's a big departure from my stuffed animal piles, but I actually had somebody in here earlier. Uh, they were asking me, how did I find my style? And I had to think about that, because one thing, I know my style will always continue to evolve, right? Like I'm always gonna be exploring new things, always uh, creatively exploring is kind of my style, if you will. But one thing I have noticed about like my stuffed animal piles to these quilts is uh, color. Color is, I think, something that will tie in all my work. Color and texture. I tell people I spend 80% of my time mixing color and 20% of the time painting. So color is my real, real, real forte in art. And in fact, if we could sum up your style any way, it would be as a colorist. Yeah. Rather than as the subject matter you paint, I'd say. You get a real emotional and philosophical connection to color. Oh yeah, big time. Uh, I love saying it's not uh, what you paint, it's how you paint. That's the real good juice in art. Um, but I started with the uh, quilt series out here, which is essentially a bunch of squares. And if you've seen my work in the past, it was very hyper-realistic, hyper-textual stuffed animal paintings. And one of the reasons I started these quilt paintings is my life and art are basically one and the same. I paint so much that my life is art, but my life outside of art is really important to me and I wanna make sure it's kind of always filled with uh, moments, if you will. And so I started these quilt paintings really almost as a teacher to me to live in the moment. So, I don't know, there's probably 300 squares on this painting, but each square is such a great time for me to be in the moment, uh, really because I'm painting a square. It's such a beautifully simple shape, and it's so easy for me to live right in that moment and not overthink things, not overanalyze things, not try to perfect things, but just paint in the moment, and that, has also really spilled off into my personal life, hanging out with my wife, hanging out with my friends, hanging out with my family. So these quilt paintings have been immensely important to me personally. So great introduction, and I like that because I know you also use the lower level to meditate. I'm gonna go back to who you are and what you do. How did this all begin? What was your early childhood like? Mm. Were your parents artists? How mm. did you know you were gonna be an artist? What was the moment that led you on this? <laughs> path. I'll try to make it short, but growing up I was always the art kid. Uh, it's, I had a natural like drawn passion towards it and I'm very thankful because my parents recognized that and they put me in extra art classes. They were definitely supportive of it, but where I came from, small town USA, like nobody made it as an artist. 
So what I've- small town? Puyallup, Washington, if you've ever heard of it. I doubt any of your listeners have heard of it. I'd be surprised. But it is the West Coast. Yeah, West Coast, outside of Seattle, about an hour outside of Seattle. And so I went off to college with the intention of becoming a dentist because that was the safe, comfortable path in life, right? Secure. Secure, yeah, yeah. And my, my motivation for it was I was gonna be a rich dentist. That was my only motivation for going into dentistry. And so I went to my pre-health advisor, I went to the University of Arizona, went to my pre-health advisor, I asked her, you know, what courses do I need to take in order to get into dental school? And she honestly asked me a question that changed my life. She goes, uh, what do you enjoy doing? And I was like, hmm. It's like, ah, well, I like art. And she goes, okay, well, take an art major, and then you could take all your biology and anatomy on the side, and you'll get to spend college doing what you love. And I was like, wow, sounds like a great idea. So first class was painting 101. You uh, either pick oil paint or acrylic paint. I picked oil paint, and for all intents and purposes after that, I painted every single day of my life. Uh, I immediately became infatuated with painting. So I eventually graduated. <laughs> I eventually graduated. Yeah. Oh, I'm a full-blown licensed dentist in California. You got I, great teeth. <laughs> thank you. Uh, natural. But yeah, so I graduated undergrad, eventually got into dental school. But all through dental school, I continued every free moment I had, I painted. And you do not have a lot of free time in dental school, but every free moment. I turned my living room into my studio, my bedroom. And about two years into, de so dental school's four years. Two years in, I had a little bit of success. I um, sold a piece at a charity auction at Long Beach Museum of Art, where I eventually had my museum show at. But that was the kind of like, oh, damn, people will pay money for this? Like, it really got the gears turning. So I was already two years of debt into dental school, so I told myself I would finish, and uh, once I finished, I'd kind of make my decision then. There is a big mental leap you have to make if your parents weren't artists, because the True. myth of the starving artist is so huge. People don't realize career artists don't starve. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, and especially where I, came from is like one in maybe one trillion people made it as an artist. That was kind of the perception, right? Like it was not a viable career path for me. And I don't know, some pretty fortunate events, I guess, occurred. Social media was getting big right when I was uh, getting ready to graduate dental school. And so I was putting my art on there. So I was seeing a kind of, uh, I guess, a fan base starting. And I was seeing, you know, it's nice to have people like compliment your work and the world see it. and. I had a pretty powerful experience about a month before I graduated dental school in a park I was walking around. And I re remember at that time thinking, I was basically graduated as a dentist. So I was almost done. I had to do one more little requirement thing. And I remember thinking like, am I gonna spend the, my life doing something I like despise dentistry or am I gonna do it doing something I love? And I remember how profound that moment was, and it really was the, all right, screw dentistry, like, I'm doing this art thing. And that's an expensive education. Woo! Very expensive. Yeah. Um, insanely expensive. And so I graduated in 2014, uh, never worked a day of dentistry in my life. I said, screw it, and I've been doing art religiously ever since. Wow, that's not what I expected to hear. <laughs> Amazing. Best Amazing. decision of my life. I'm sure. Your parents were happy about that? 
My parents have always been insanely supportive. Um, and they just want what's best for you. They want what's yeah, best for me. Lovely. And luckily, maybe six months out of dental school, I showed in the, it was the LA art fair. And I showed, and I sold a piece for five figures, like opening night. And they were there. And so it was a shock to them and it was a shock to me too. But I remember kind of after that, they've always been hyper supportive of me. Let's move to the next canvas, mm -hmm. where I'm going to ask you what influences you culturally and artistically, who are you shaped by, and how do you approach your work? Mm. There's a lot. Um, one that's been very impactful, Philip Gustin. Really, so I saw his show in the Venice Biennale in maybe 2017, and there was a little video of him playing afterwards, and when he was talking with the interviewer and when he said, Basically, he goes, when I leave the studio is when I really start painting. And that was so impactful for me. What did it mean to you, that statement of his? I'm, I'm like probably many people and especially many artists. If you gave me a thousand years to think about one painting, I could think about it for a thousand years. But I wouldn't say that's a great way to go about art. And it was kind of the first time, it's almost like, I finally gave myself permission just to be in the moment and paint after that. Cause I was like, oh, well he's doing it. Like I can do it. And now I'm seeing, I just heard a great condo quote too, where he goes, um, paint and then think afterwards, like paint first and think second. And I love that whole mentality of creating. It's, there's no wrong answers in art, right? Like you don't have to overthink all this stuff. Like just act. Like the more you act, the more you get to create. And because then your conscious mind will link to your subconscious mind, oh, and yeah. that's when creativity flows. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Huh. You meditate on a regular basis. How does that inform your practice? Mm. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a uh, nitric oxide for creativity. It's been the thing that's helped me reinforce. Um, I know I keep saying living in the moment and it sounds kind of blase to me after I say it a lot, but it really is when you really are living in the moment. I mean, it's flow state. Think of any time, you know, you're in flow state. Meditation is such a, it's almost like for me, the, it's the key that unlocks it. It tends to remove self-doubt. Oh, totally. Um, and when you have self-doubt, meditate. It's a, yeah, you'll just wipe it away. Um, you kind of re, you can get caught up in your head you know, in normal day life and it just helps you stop, reevaluate, reset, and take action. Um, so doing something like the painting we're standing in front of now, which is somewhere in between the stuffed animals and the quilts, I'm seeing this as a pivotal piece in this body of work. Oh yeah. There's yellows and, and, and I can see drawing on it and Talk to me about this piece. If you remember the title, that would be great too. Um, so this piece we're standing in front of, uh, it's part of my Little Monster series. Um, this one happens to be called Big Little Monster because it's the only large scale one I've painted. It's uh, 48 inches by 36, which 122 by, I don't know, 110 centimeter. But it's, yeah, you're right. It's a mixture of my stuffed animals mixed with kind of everything else I do. And my whole intention with these pieces is to create like a kid. Uh, I'm, I'm a little envious of kids because I know when kids are creating, they are creating in the moment because they love what they're doing. They don't care about what other people think. They don't care about what they're thinking. They're just acting. So 
I create these little kind of goofy, weird, I don't know. Gustin-like. Gustin-like stuffed animals yeah. with absolutely no intention of what they're going to be or what they're going to become. And really from, I'm talking second to second, I'm, I'm letting it come to be and evolve. And what that come to being looks like is thick impastos of paint. Uh, you mentioned Kondo earlier, and his best paintings are the ones that are a mixture of painting and drawing. That's going on here. Mm -hmm. And there's always a shadow in your work. Yes. Okay, so that's probably the one, I would say, um, adult-like feature to this, because I, I love Rembrandt lighting, so lighting from a 45 degree. You'll see that in almost every single painting I do. But I love creating these very abstract forms, and the moment you put a shadow on it, it becomes a thing. Like, now it's an object that's casting a shadow. So shadows are very important to me. I mean, you know, painting, shadow, and highlight, right? And these are really fun to kind of almost create almost blindly, and then stop and slow down a little bit and add those shadows in areas to the abstract forms. So you get this really abstract, uh, kind of creature, but my hope is that it has kind of a life to it. It feels like it's really there. Oh, it smells, it feels, it looks. <laughs> I mean, there's a tactile quality to your work. Oh yeah, very tactile. I kind of use anything that I have on hand. So there's charcoal in this piece. It's predominantly oil paint, but there's crayon, oil pastel, yeah, charcoal, everything, you name it. There's probably pen in there somewhere. Walk over here to the piece that I know changed for you what you thought you were capable of. Mm. What's this piece called? This piece is called Third Time's a Charm. So this piece was created right after, uh, again, the work I'm probably best known for are piles of hyper-realistic stuffed animals. And I would often get the comment, uh, and I think people would, say it as a compliment, they go, oh, it looks so real, it looks like a photograph. And in my head, it's just like a dagger in the heart. I'm like, I don't wanna create something that looks like a photograph. I wanna create something nobody's ever seen before. So I started the whole series Crazy Stuffed Animals. So yeah, imagine if uh, Kondo or Gustin painted stuffed animals kind of vibe. And- The Kondo mixed with Mike Kelly. Yeah, there you go. So third time's a charm was the third crazy stuffed animal I painted. And when I finished it, I was like, oh, this is it. Uh, this is what I've been seeking. And so it's a crazy, it's a pink crazy stuffed animal, confetti flying in the air. There's a leg missing. Leg missing. It looks like it's a theater stage, which is. Ooh, yeah, it's got theater lighting to, to it. To me, a bacon, Francis Bacon nod. Ooh, thank you, I love Francis Bacon. But I remember going into this piece, my intention was I wanted to mix realism with abstraction, but make it all feel right. And I don't know necessarily what right means, but you know what I mean? Like it, one doesn't stick out more than the other. You it's, know it when you see it. Yeah, you kind of, yeah, exactly. And so in this piece, it has the real thick pink textural fur, but then mixed with a weird abstract floating eyebrow and a weird hand that's like kind of coming out the back, uh, mixed with the confetti and all the different mid foreground and background. And the reason this painting is so important to me is because after finishing it, it was one of those paintings where <laughs> it's kind of like, holy shit, I can do this? And it, I didn't realize I was capable of this. And it was 
the first time where I broke the rules and it, for lack of a better word, it worked. And now this kind of set off everything I've done. This made me start to break the rules in everything I do. Uh, it made me realize there is no rules in art. Uh, you told me you wouldn't part with this piece. No, I'll never I sell like it. That. I really <laughs> like that. With that, what would you say? I mean, I'm looking around and I see uh, you working things out in pencil crayon, I see sculptural forms, I know that you look at lots of images, so everything is about a visual language. Mm -hmm. In general, or, or go specific, what would you say art is for? Well, okay, this is going to be a very broad statement, but imagine a world without creativity in an art. Like, it, no, no person living would want to live in that world, right? No architecture, no amazing cars, no music, no amazing food, no art. It's the food for the human soul. I don't quite know why we're so drawn to art and why I'm so drawn to it. I don't necessarily... Yeah, I, I, and I don't necessarily want to find out. Uh, I'm kind of quoting Philip Guston again. I mean, he said the same thing. It's, uh, it's kind of that magicalness of being human. And you talk about being in the moment, being present. It also, when you connect with that, it makes you appreciate your life and be happy sure. to be alive and kind of erases complaining. My, my um, We have a dog in the house who actually agrees with all of this too. Yeah. In case you heard that, that was a hip hip hurrah from the dog in the house. If you could live with one piece of work, what would it be and why? And money's not the deciding factor. Oh. I love uh, Peter Paul Rubens' The Tiger Hunt. Uh, I've, I've honestly, I've never seen it in person. I've seen a lot of uh, Rubens' paintings in person. I haven't seen that one, but that's one that I'm, I guess I'm so like inspired by that I know at one point in my career, and I've already done a, a small study of it, I will recreate the full scale thing to have in my home, um, in my kind of own style. Uh, Right? Yeah. Oh, it's going to yeah. be awesome. Yeah, but this is something I want to talk about too, because the second you got to London, you let London influence you. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed, or can you articulate the ways in which it's influenced you? Hmm. So well, it's like your paintbrush has an accent, as they say. <laughs> well, I like that. It has, and I'm trying, it very much influenced the uh, first quilt I did, which I call London Summer. So it's the colorful quilt with all the squares and all the colors in it. There's greens, there's pinks, there's limestone colors, there's the British blue and red. Um, so that definitely influenced me a lot from walking around the parks and gardens. You guys have amazing parks and gardens here and everybody's using them. People are laying out in blankets. Like that to me is one of my happy places because I know it's a bunch of people like living in the moment, uh, laying on a blanket, having a picnic with friends. Like that is good living to me. So that definitely influenced me. Now I came out here with, you know, probably five different series of works I work in. And I came out here with the intention of exploring all of them. So I had this intention coming out here. Um, I did do, oh, here's a good one. Uh, I did the Herod's Bears. So I did a couple crazy stuffed animals. So I do these crazy stuffed animals and one of my big signatures are teddy bears with upside down heads. The upside down head is a, has become kind of my symbol. It's like, um, don't follow society norms, like do what you really love in life, like be different, like follow your passion. So that's the upside down head. 
So I did the Herod's Green Bear, the crazy stuffed animal, which turned out super cute. Um, I always know they're good when I laugh when I'm painting them. Uh, yeah, it's got a red background, the, the hat, the Herod's hat's on it. Its face is upside down, its tongue's out. It's absolutely <laughs> charming. But, it, but charming doesn't mean uh, light, because there's a thick impasto painting again. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, painting these are, again, they're very much like in the moment paintings. They're one, I never quite know the kind of expression I'm gonna get in them the way they're gonna look, so they're all very unique to when they're painted. Uh, this one turned out extra goofy. It's like, I couldn't have planned this out, uh, and I love that. You're right, there's no way it could have been planned out. I, no. I get that even by saying it. Yeah. Uh, it's because also the composition, even though things are turned upside down, it works, so oh, you yeah. would have had to do that bit by bit by bit. Yeah, it's so funny, I now, I, I've looked at upside down heads so much. I even have a, I've made a plushie, uh, Smiles, which is an upside down teddy bear. And now that seems normal to me. Now I can't, now when I see it the opposite way, I, my brain's like, well, that's not right. Like <laughs> flip it upside down. Uh, this is a little off topic, but something I knew when I was on the right track is uh, kids love my work. And they love everywhere from the crazy you know, stuffed animal, teddy bears to the quilts. Like, uh, I see them light up when they come in here. And uh, that I knew I was like, okay, I know kids will tell, like, kids are unapologetic about, you know, their feelings. And they'll, if they don't like something, they'll show it. And kids, when they come in here, light up. And I wanna talk about that, cause you're on the main floor at Maddox. It gets busy. You keep the door open so people can come in while you're working. Mm -hmm. Not all artists wanna be watched working. It doesn't bother you at all. No, I love it. it there's a um, performative aspect to it as well. I would say it's, uh, it's like invigorating. I, um, I love, like, I, well, I do this for myself for sure, but I really do this to bring joy to others. Um, I used to kind of uh, almost be a little shameful of saying that, thinking that paintings had to be about some deep political meaning or some deep tragedy, but I, screw it. Like, I honestly, I wanna bring joy to this world. And I know I get to do that through art. Brent, it's been wonderful talking to you. If anyone is in Shepherd Market or the Mayfair area, come down and meet Brent. He's on a summer residency at Maddox until the end of August. Yeah, August 25th. Yeah, please come down. I got the door open. So come in and uh, take a look around, hang out. Thank you, Brent. Thanks <laughs> for being so open and, and easy to be around. Oh, thank you, Maeve. Ditto. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>